0: those three chapters. Before we consider them further, let me uh, pray for us. (laughs) Heavenly Father, thank you for preserving this account. Please teach us through it, and please show us more of what you are really like and how that should shape our lives. We ask that in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Well, the flood account is popular material as kids' songs. Here's one of them. The Lord said to Noah, there's going to be a floody-floody. Get those children out of the muddy-muddy. The Lord told Noah to build an arky-arky. Build it out of gopher barky-barky. It rained and it poured for 40, you've guessed it, daisies-daisies, almost drove those animals crazies crazies There we have it. I could see... Angela there, you were recounting it? One from your childhood? And not, so and not so long ago. There we go, there we go. Close to all our hearts. And count yourselves fortunate I didn't sing it to you, but just recounted it. Well, uh, the account of the flood. Uh, it's gift-wrapped for kids' work, isn't it? And, uh, but this may be a revelation for you, because that wasn't why those original chapters were first written. Uh, the author, of course, was Moses, and he penned his five-part book, For the people of God, on the borders of the promised land. And when he wrote the flood account, he wasn't thinking, I better stick something in there for the kids to stop them from going crazy. He actually wrote it to teach the grown-ups. And he wrote it to teach the grown-ups about God and what God is really like. And he also wrote it to teach the grown-ups how they should, in the light of what God was really like, how they should then live. And more specifically, of course, he wrote it to a generation whose parents had tried and tested God and messed him around and who had tragically suffered the consequences. And Moses didn't want the next generation to make the same mistake. And so this record of God's actions was to teach them and us what God is really like And as they and we understand more about God, so they and we will fear him and obey him and trust him and love him more, as their parents had failed to do. Now, if anyone is qualified to talk on a passage on rain, it's me considering my climate of origin. So let's look more closely at it together. Uh, Firstly, a word of uh, how we should understand Old Testament narrative. Uh, narrative doesn't tell you explicitly what the point of each account is. And so, therefore, we have to work it out from the clues in the text. And we have to look for where the author puts his emphasis. It requires, therefore, careful reading and an attention to detail. So, the two main concerns of this section we're going to see are this: firstly, uh, God's judgment. And secondly, God's salvation. Those are the two big themes God's judgment and God's salvation. So uh, let's look at each of them in turn. Firstly, God's judgment. And we're going to make some observations as to what it tells us about God's judgment. The first truth we note is that God's judgment is real. The flood really happened. Now, when you go into a bookshop, uh, I don't know which sections you are drawn to, but I myself have to confess I am drawn to the aviation section, but also geography. And I studied geography up to uh, degree level, so you can understand why. And uh, one day, a few years ago, and I was in the geography section of the, the bookshop, I came across uh, this work which caught my eye. There it is The Day That the World Exploded, August 27th, 19, 1883. Krakatoa. Krakatoa, you may know of that, the, uh, the volcano just off the, uh, one of the islands in Indonesia. And there it is. Uh, a very good read it is, too. If you want to know what to get me for Christmas, there's an idea. Now, the date in the title of that book gives a big clue that the book is not a work of fiction. It's actually talking about an historic event. And therefore, when we come to the account of Noah and the flood, there is a similar clue. In fact, there are several of those similar clues woven throughout the text. Uh, chapter 7, verse 11, for example. In the 600th year of Noah's life, on the 17th day, on the second month. Again, chapter 8, verse 4, we learn that. On the 17th day of the second month, seventh month, the ark came to rest on the mountains of Ararat. And there are other examples Do you see what it's saying? This is not a work of fiction. This is real history. So, the flood really happened. And what really happened, it wasn't an accident. It wasn't just a freak of nature. It was quite literally an act of God. It was an act of God's judgment. Look at chapter 6, verse 17. The Lord says, I am going to bring floodwaters on the earth to destroy all life under the heavens. It is God who is doing it. This flood is God's judgment brought on the world by God Himself. Now then, uh, when the Bible talks about God bringing judgment... It's not conjuring up some fiction to scare us. It's dealing with reality, as real as this flood that God brought on the world. So the first thing we've seen is God's judgment is real. The second thing we see here is that God's judgment is terrifying. The horror of what happened Is not really captured by the line, it rained and it poured for 40 daisy daisies. It really isn't. The reality of what happened is utterly terrifying. Just think, at creation, God separated the waters above from the waters below. But now in judgment, what he has previously separated, he merges and with terrifying and catastrophic results. Chapter 7, verse 11 says, On that day, all the springs of the great deep burst forth, and the floodgates of the heavens were opened. There's water coming from above, and there's water coming from below, non-stop for 40 days. And ultimately, of course, the water prevails, and the water conquers all. Uh, living now after the events of the tsunami in Asia and the flooding. We've seen floods, of course, on catastrophic scales in America and also in Australia. And as a result of those events, maybe now we can put ourselves a little more in the situation that we couldn't before those things happened. Maybe now we can imagine a little more of the true horror of what happened then and we've seen for ourselves the awesome and awful destructive power of water on a large scale and yet what we've seen in our time is only really a mini flood by comparison to what happened then imagine experiencing a flood which in according to verse 20 even the highest mountains are covered and the carnage was total Uh, Chapter 7, verse 21 says, every living thing that moved on the earth perished and all mankind. Do you see what we're talking about here? It is absolutely horrific. It is terrifying. Utter devastation. And it was God who brought it. Uh, These days, uh, many people, of course, don't believe in God. Of those who do, many of them feel uncomfortable with this sort of God. There are people in churches and in society who reject the idea that God would judge people and send them to hell. And so what do they do? They redefine God to be a God with which they are more comfortable. But the God they worship is not the God of the Bible. He is the one who in history past judged the world by blotting out every living thing in a terrifying flood. And the character of the God who is actually there is revealed to us in His Word. And He's not, therefore, something we create according to what we are comfortable with. A common response, of course, today to talk uh, of God's judgment is, well, that's outrageous. Uh, I can't believe in a God like that. It's barbaric. If that's what God is like, I'm not interested. And tragically, that is what many people say today. But that brings us to the third thing we note about God's judgment here. Not only is it reality, not only is it terrifying, but thirdly, It is just. Uh, For starters, notice the reason God judges the world. It is because of incredible, wide-scale wickedness and evil in the hearts of people. Uh, Chapter 6, verse 5. The Lord saw how great man's wickedness on the earth had become. Now, if you're interested in ancient cultures and civilizations, uh, you will know that the stories of a great flood occur in the accounts of ancient cultures around the world. Now, one of them is called the Gilgamesh Epic. And in that, there are many parallels with the biblical accounts of a flood. But there are also big differences too. According to this myth... One of the reasons that God's decide to destroy mankind is for, and wait for it, for making too much noise. I kid you not. Now, if you've got noisy neighbours who keep you up at night, maybe total destruction of them at times seems like a fitting response. But in the cold light of day the day after, you'd probably see, actually, that would be a bit of an overreaction. Now, if God had destroyed... The world of that time because mankind was making too much noise, we'd probably have a, a strong case of saying, that's actually a bit of an overreaction. But that wasn't the reason. The reason was the great and utter depravity and wickedness of the human race. And it was that that provoked God's judgment, not loud music and noisy neighbors. You see, the God of the Bible is the God of the whole earth. And he has the right to call every member of his creation to account before him. And when we question his right to do so, actually what's going on there is it's an expression of the sin in our rebellious, sinful hearts. Look at uh, Psalm, uh, Psalm 10, verse 13. It says this, Why does the wicked man revile God? Why does he say to himself, he won't call me to account? Actually, it's because his heart is evil. And we live in a culture that simply won't tolerate the idea of a God judging. But actually, that is an expression, an outflow of the wicked heart of many people in our culture today. So... God's judgment, as Christian people, it is not something we should feel embarrassed about. As Christian people, God's judgment is not something, actually, that shows God in a bad light. Rather, his judgment is perfectly just, and his judgment is perfectly right, and his judgment is perfectly fair, and his judgment is perfectly appropriate it doesn't make him a monster. Quite the opposite. He would be a monster if he didn't act justly. He would be a monster if he was amoral, if he wasn't concerned about wickedness, and if he just brushed it under the carpet. Now, People may well then say, does any of this matter anyway? Isn't this all hypothetical? Uh, This is all surely just a thing of the past because God has promised he won't judge the world like this again. And indeed, what do we see God saying after the flood, chapter 8, verse 21? He says, never again will I destroy all living creatures as I have done. So the question is this, is God's judgment really just a thing of the past? And what is going on here? Uh, Noah and his family, they emerge from the ark and they blink in the light of a new world. Uh, It's a new beginning. It's a bit like a new creation. And of course, God's command to them in chapter 9 verse 1 has a very familiar ring to it, doesn't it? Chapter 9 verse 1, be fruitful and increase in number and fill the earth. Where have we seen that before? Genesis chapter 1. What God is doing now is he's reaffirming his original creation intention. But how long before another flood would be needed? Uh, chapter 8, verse 21 God knows that the fundamental problem of evil in the human heart has not been wiped out. Uh, like Adam, uh, Noah has a sinful encounter, we could say, with fruit. Uh, Chapter 9, we're told that Noah was the first homebrewer in creation. Uh, He planted a vineyard, and he makes his own wine, and one day he gets totally nutty trolled. He's out of his head. And of course, we read, didn't we, his son Ham treats him with utter disrespect and derision. And consequently, the descendants of Ham are cursed. And at this rate, human history is going to feature a universal flood from God every few years. It seems unavoidable. But that is why God in His mercy reaffirms His original creation covenant. And of course, as we saw a few weeks ago, the essence of that covenant is that God will remain faithful to all that He has made. God will sustain it. He will enable it to continue. Chapter 8, verse 22 again. As long as the earth endures, seed time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night, will never cease. And of course the rainbow is a sign of God's covenant. Isn't God merciful? Because as we look back on human history, we see just as much wickedness as before the flood. As we look back, we can see that people have continued to walk in their own wicked ways. So why haven't we had a succession of universal floods and judgments? Because God is merciful and He is faithful to His creation. That is easy to take for granted, isn't it? And therefore, it is important for us to thank God for His patience with each of us, for His goodness and His mercy it is appropriate for us to thank God that he allows life and order to continue in a world that is going its own way. But the next thing we need to notice is this. We shouldn't be complacent. God's covenant of preservation doesn't mean we can breathe easy. Uh, Yes, God will mercifully keep the show on the road for now, but there is still a coming judgment. And this historical event in the past acts as a warning for the future. Uh, It was a warning to the people of Israel in Moses' day not to mess with God. Uh, If we read Deuteronomy 28, uh, this records Moses' sermon to them delivered just before they enter the promised land. And in Deuteronomy 28, we see God making promises to His people. If you obey then life in the land will be great for you. It will go well. You will sit in my blessing. But if you disobey, if you turn your back on me, life in the land will come unhinged. Ultimately, you will lose it and you will fall under my curse. So you see what this is saying to the people who originally heard it. the generation in the desert from the lips of Moses. It makes a difference as to how you hear this flood account if you put yourself in their shoes. Because, of course, they would read Deuteronomy 28 with the flood account very much in mind. It brings home to them the fact that God is not playing games. It reminds them, don't mess with this God because he's a God who judges and he is serious about it. And the flood wasn't just a warning to them, the Israelites in the desert, because the flood is also a warning to us today. Matthew 24, Jesus teaches about the final judgment day to come, the day when he returns. And he says that that day will catch people unprepared just as in the days of Noah. Matthew 24, verse 37. Jesus says this, "'As it was in the days of Noah, "'so it will be at the coming of the Son of Man. "'For in the days before the flood, "'people were eating and drinking, "'marrying and giving in marriage, "'up to the day Noah entered the ark. "'And they knew nothing about what would happen "'until the flood came and took them all away. "'And this is how it will be "'at the coming of the Son of Man.'" When Jesus returns, life will be going on as normal. When Jesus returns, people will be getting on the train to work. When Jesus returns, people will be standing at the photocopier. They'll be having dinner. They'll be sitting in the bath. They'll be laughing in the social club. But when Jesus returns, the end comes. When we bring that back to then to our church, and we think about the sort of culture we're trying to uh, encourage us to develop and to breathe, it reminds us of this whole thrust we have to try and build relationships with the lost, with people who do not yet know, yet know and love the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, we have this initiative to eat with a neighbour. Uh, we run things like the Lego League. We have gingerbread house making. We do other things, and you're all doing other things in your everyday walks of life, having people around for meals. The idea, of course, is to build bridges with people, to be involved in people's lives and to get to know them, And so that we can love them, we can serve them, and we can breathe the gospel into their lives. And where the opportunity presents itself, we can actually speak the gospel into their lives. Do we have busy lives? We do. Is it easy for this to slip off our agendas? It is. What will help us to keep on reaching out to people, uh, to keep building bridges with the people? I think it's what we're seeing here. The knowledge that one day Jesus will return. And that each of these people, the neighbours we see living next to us in our houses our colleagues sitting next to us on adjacent desks to us at work, they need to be ready for that day. And the fact that the rhythm of life continues on around us can lure us into thinking, hey, it's always going to be so. We know, don't we, in our heads, I know Jesus will return, but is that reflected in our day-to-day priorities and perspectives? Is it reflected in us continuing to say, I really, really want to keep reaching out to people? And in that song we sang earlier, it was a beautiful song, wasn't it? Resurrection. We sang in that song of God's salvation work in our own lives. Grace to the death bound from our risen King. And yet we are surrounded by people who cannot yet sing that. They can't sing grace from the Saviour because it hasn't happened to them yet. But of course, by God's grace and his power, it can. And that is God's work in the world, through his word and through his people. And so, is the danger not that we can be lured into this false sense that, hey, everything is going to keep on going ad infinitum. As we commute to work this week, say to ourselves, as in the days of Noah as we sit in meetings this week maybe we could scribble a note to ourselves on our pad as in the days of Noah and as we stand at the sink and look on in despair at that huge pile of dirty dishes maybe we can remind ourselves this week as in the days of Noah because life will continue on in its normal rhythm but a day will come when as in the days of Noah The Lord Jesus will return. And we need to keep that at the back of our minds all the time. So, we thought about the reality of God's judgment. Let's now move on to think about the reality of God's salvation. As the song goes, uh, the Lord told Noah to build an archiarchy. And we're just going to focus on two questions of God's salvation. Uh, How did God save Noah? And why did God save Noah? So we'll begin with the easy one. Uh, How did God save Noah? Uh, Chapter 6, verse 14. So make yourself an ark of cypress wood. Uh, The ark was a huge box. And God tells Noah, not just to make it, but in verse 15, this is how you are to build it. And of course, instructions follow. The purpose of the ark was to provide a refuge into which Noah and his family could flee from God's judgment. Chapter 7, verse 7 says, And Noah and his sons and his wives and his sons' wives entered the ark to escape the waters of the flood. The ark was basically a huge lifeboat. And notice who initiated the rescue operation it was God. God comes up with the idea, God gives the plans for the construction, and God presumably brings the animals to the ark in his magnificent procession. And when everyone's on board, we read in chapter 7, verse 16, then the Lord shuts him in. And in chapter 8, we see that it is God who remembers Noah, and it's God who causes the wind to blow over the earth so that the waters subside. There's absolutely no doubt, isn't there, as to who is the director of operations. Salvation is from the Lord. We are totally helpless. We are totally dependent on him for rescue. Salvation comes from him alone. And what we see, therefore, in the flood account is this. There is no salvation from judgment outside of the ark. Uh, chapter 7, verse 23, emphasizes that every living thing that was, was blotted out from the earth, uh, only Noah was left, and those with him in the ark. As the kids' ch- uh, talk reminded us, our refuge from judgment, it's not a boat, it's a person. It's the Lord Jesus Christ himself, and it's in Jesus' That God has provided a means for us to escape His judgment. And it's in Jesus that is the only place of refuge from that coming judgment. And He is the one to whom we must flee. Do you give thanks each day for the ark that God has given us in the Lord Jesus Christ? And if you've not yet fled to that place of refuge, do you see that when that final judgment comes, the only ones left will be those who have fled to the ark of Jesus? Because it's only those in the ark of Jesus who will be kept safe in the face of God's final judgment. So we thought about how God saved Noah. Let's finally think about why did God save Noah Now, this question is a little more tricky. Uh, Most of us here, all of us are probably evangelicals, uh, and the danger is that we come to this text and we we think we know the right answer, and we then try and uh, shoehorn what we think is the right answer into the text to make it fit our bigger framework. So uh, we come looking for the answer that uh, Noah, of course, was saved purely by God's grace. Uh, He wasn't saved by any goodness or works because we know, of course, that, is a fundamental gospel truth. But the trouble is, that's not what the text says. We know, yes, salvation is from the Lord, as we've seen. Salvation is purely his initiative, and it's purely his operation. But why does God save Noah? Why him? Was it just his arbitrary sovereign choice? What does the text actually say? Our section today began in chapter 6, verse 9, and it says this. This is the account of Noah. Noah was a righteous man, blameless among the people of his time, and he walked with God. Noah is a righteous man. In other words, he lives according to God's standards. Noah is a blameless man. It's a description used later of Job. Noah is a man who walked with God. Of course, a phrase used elsewhere only of Enoch in Genesis chapter 5. Do you see? In a wicked generation, Noah stands out. And the point is reinforced in chapter 7 verse 1. The Lord then said to Noah, "'Go into the ark, you and your whole family, "'because I have found you righteous in this generation.'" And did you notice, running through the text, the emphasis on Noah's obedience? Chapter 6, verse 22. Noah did everything, just as the Lord commanded him. 7, verse 5. And Noah did all the Lord commanded him. Uh, Why all the detailed uh, dimensions of the art recorded? Uh, It's actually not so that we could build one ourselves, although the Americans have done that. Maybe you've seen it. But actually, it's to show how detailed and meticulous Noah's obedience was. He obeyed God's instructions in every detail. And his righteousness is also seen in his patience as he waits in the ark for God's deliverance. Did you spot the emphasis at chapter 8, verse 10? He waited. You've guessed it. Chapter 8, verse 12. He waited waited. Bible quiz question, how long was Noah in the ark? Well, if you look at the dates, he was in there actually a whole year. It's a long time to wait, and yet he does. And it's a long time to be cooped up in the world's first floating zoo with lots of smelly, noisy animals. So the emphasis of the text is Noah's obedience. He was a righteous, godly man who obeyed the Lord. Uh, now, before you start ringing around for a new minister, uh, I firmly believe the Bible teaches that ultimately we are saved by grace, not by works. But I don't think that is the emphasis of the text here. And if we try to crowbar into our framework, we're going to actually miss the point. Remember who Moses is writing to. Uh, it's not a pamphlet written for unbelievers. It's written for people who are already believers, the people of God. And what point is he stressing? If you want to be saved, make sure you follow Noah's example. Why did the previous generation of the Israelites in the desert not make it? Because they refused to obey God's voice. Moses' main concern in Deuteronomy is to urge the next generation, don't make the same mistake. And he's saying, look back to Noah. Noah is the model example to follow. He's the model Israelite. He's not perfect. He gets drunk. But he is righteous and he's obedient and he walks with God. Do you see? Noah is being held up as an example for us to follow. And when the prophet Ezekiel, uh, Ezekiel 14, he picks out three men as examples of righteousness, who does he choose? Daniel, Job, and you've guessed it, Noah. So what do we see? Faith and obedience, they go hand in hand. And Hebrews 11 holds up Noah as a man of faith, but faith is expressed in obedience. And throughout Scripture, what do we see? The mark of God's true people is that they keep trusting God, they wait patiently for God's rescue, and they live righteous, obedient lives whilst they wait. Does that describe you? Isn't that a challenge to all of us who profess Christian faith? Is living a godly life our number one priority each and every day? Do we stand out in a wicked generation? Are we committed to living lives of obedience in every detail of our daily lives? So in conclusion, two big themes. God's judgment and His salvation. I don't know what sort of week you've had. You may have hassles at work, you may be in a very stressful week, you may have difficulties at home which are proving all-consuming. Although today's passage may seem at first hand a million miles away from our day-to-day concerns and lives, actually, it gives us the perspective we need in our daily lives. One of the beauties of a text like this is it refocuses us on the big canvas of life. It reminds us of what ultimately matters in the midst of the work projects and the traffic jams and the pressures of daily life. If you wouldn't call yourself a Christian, this account has a warning and invitation. It's a warning about the reality of God's coming judgment and the most important and beautiful invitation in life you can ever receive. To accept this offer of salvation that the Lord Jesus is offering you. For you to flee to the only place where you can truly be protected from God's coming judgment. The person of the Lord Jesus Christ. And for those of us who profess faith, just as for the people of God on the borders of the promised land, This account is a challenge to be like Noah, to live righteously in every detail of our daily lives, to walk hand in hand with God in joyful, loving devotion, and to continue to reach out to the lost. Shall we pray? Lord God, what we see in this account today, which you've preserved for our benefit, informs us and reminds us of what you are truly like and the judgment that you will justly one day bring through the Lord Jesus Christ. We pray, Heavenly Father, that that reality would never slip from our consciousness. We pray that we would always be mindful of it. It would be in the back of our minds as we live our daily lives and make our daily choices. Please, we pray, help us to live lives which shine in this generation which are obedient and God-glorifying and help us to have a heart which burns and yearns for the lost, for the lost, for those who don't yet know you. And help us to keep reaching out to people around us who don't yet know you and to keep building bridges with the people and wait to see how you will use us in your good purposes to bring that ultimate blessing to these people's lives. We ask this all in the name of our Lord and Jesus. Amen.